Hello, I'm Matt Pryor of the Get Up Kids, and this is Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets, where we tell the oral history of the label by the artists, fans, and insiders. In this episode, we will pick up the rest of the story of Census Fail. After their debut record, Let It Unfold You, received massive success, they made their sophomore album Still Searching. I spoke to lead singer Buddy Nielsen about it. Tell me about going into the next record and the next, like, you know, like, because that's a really impossible bar to set. Yeah, I mean, it, it almost destroyed the band. I mean, as they do. <laughs> you know, we went super big. We had a, you know, a big boy budget, just like back in the day. Uh, you know, we we spent $250,000 on the record, gave Mr. CLA about 100000 of those, we recorded it at this fucking amazing studio called Bearsville. R.I.P., but, you know, Muddy Waters. And, Woodstock, isn't it? Yeah. Janis Joplin and the fucking Injustice for All. Just, yeah. I mean, just amazing. Just one of these experiences. They recorded that- all the bass for Injustice for All. There. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was just such a cool experience. I mean, it was it was amazing. I mean, really, to be able to have that experience, uh, recorded a studio like that with the history. And, and the reason why we were able to follow up the success of Let It Unfold You is because we finished finished writing in 2003-ish, 2004. We're writing the entire time and growing as musicians and getting better. And we didn't have to make another record for for years. I mean, like we wrote most of what Let It Unfold You was in 2002, 2003. So then four years later is is finally when we record Still Searching. So we had, we're completely different people. We're no longer, you know, teenagers, we're young adults. I mean, everybody got better at their craft. I mean, what their strong points were, they got better at. We actually got a new guitar player, Heath from Midtown, who's an exceptionally amazing musician. And he just took us to another level. If you're a fan of this podcast, then I assume you're at least passingly familiar with one of New Brunswick's favorite bands, Midtown. When that band broke up in 2005, guitarist Heath Saraceno was looking for a new gig. Do you meet Buddy and the other Census Fail guys from playing in Midtown? Yeah. So it's about a 45-minute ride from the home of Midtown to the home of Census Fail. Very close. And actually, a bunch of those dudes lived up in Bergen County and my girlfriend who's now my wife uh, lived up there too so I would see them around like at the mall yeah. they were pretty fresh out of high school at the time the census fail guys they were pretty young are you older than them yeah I'm about five years older than them I'm 42 okay so you and yeah. I I'm 43 so okay but so one of the things that keeps coming up about census fail is just how young they were when they blew up. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, like, when did you join the band? I joined the band in 2005. So this is after Let It Unfold You comes out. And are you you writing on Still Searching? Perfect. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So I I joined in the middle of the touring cycle of Let It Unfold You. And then uh, then we started writing Still Searching on on that tour. So did you feel significant? Because if you're five years older than them and they're teenagers... I mean, did it? Did you feel like the the old man in the group at the time, for lack of a better term? Absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah. I was like nine years older than Dan. Is Dan um, the drummer? Dan's the drummer. Dan okay. was like fifteen when he started. That's what I'm finding out, which is crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, because he he acted like an old man. Oh he really? Was like, way, like way old for his years. He just wanted to like hang out and watch movies and didn't want to go out and get in trouble. So what brought you into the fold with those guys? Did Midtown break up first? Yes. Midtown broke up in May of 2005 and I was home 
all summer trying to figure out what I was going to do. And then September rolled around and I was like, eh, thinking about possibly getting a job or trying to learn a trade or something, which I would eventually do years down the road. Um, but I got a call from actually my roommate came down. He's like, my girlfriend is friends with this guy, Mike, who plays in a band. They just lost their guitar player. They're looking for another guitar player. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I'm like, what band? And they told me Census Fail. I was like, oh, I know those guys. I toured with them over the summer a couple of years ago. They're great, great guys. Have them give me a call. So Mike Glitta called me and he said, Dave's not in the band anymore. Uh, we have a thing for MTV. We're going to be recording three songs, MTV Live. These are the three songs. Um, are you interested? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I, I hadn't heard those three songs. So when I got off the phone with Mike, I went out and I bought their two records. I took them home, listened to them all weekend, played along with them. I learned all the songs. I went to practice with them on Monday. We played through the three songs. Everything went really well. And I was like, do you guys want to do another song? And they were like, yeah, yeah, sure. And funny thing, I was on Warped Tour in like 2001, 2000 or 2001. And I got to have breakfast with Chris Shiflett. Mm -hmm. I was picking his brain because he made the, the incredible leap from No Use for a Name to the Foo Fighters. Which I just thought was incredible. So I was like, how did you do it? And he was like, I knew that they were going to try out a bunch of different guitar players. I wanted to be the most prepared. So I learned all their songs. So that was just always in the back of my head. Okay. So when this rolled around, I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to be the most prepared person. I don't know who else they're going to ask to try out for the band. You know, I don't know if they have other friends who are going to like, you know, fly in. They had yeah. a lot of notoriety, like people like were talking about them. They were doing really well. So I thought that they would probably be looking for other guitar players. And I just wanted to be the best. I mean, not the best, but like the most prepared and most ready. So I don't think they auditioned anyone else at that time. Were you cognizant of how big they had gotten and like what kind of a ride they were on at the time? I had an idea. We played with them, as I mentioned, I think it was two summers before we were out with uh, Reggie in the full effect. And we were, we were main support, but like every band who played before us on that tour was blowing us out of the water. Uh -huh. It was like census fail would play before us on a part of the tour. My chemical romance was on a part of the tour. So we were just watching this new thing kind of bubble up. Or like, you know, they're they're more aggressive. There's some singing, there's some screaming, there's really aggressive guitars. I saw that shifting a little bit then. And then by, by the time 2005 came around, it was really evident. Everything's getting more aggressive. When you started like writing with the band, was that like an, an easy thing for you to like latch onto? I mean, a lot of what I got from talking to Buddy was like kind of a post 9-11 sort of darkness that kind of came out. And I had never really thought about that before. And so I just didn't know, because you and I come from the same sort of generation, but if like that was an easy role for you to like slide into, to like be writing in that sort of kind of darker, heavier headspace. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it's interesting that he mentioned the, the post 9-11 thing. I mean, obviously being from New Jersey and the East Coast, 9-11 mm -hmm. played like a huge part in, in our in our lives. And, you know, it was very terrible. You, everyone knew someone who was involved, you know, so I, I could see how that darkness crept in then. But that, that wasn't really the case for me. I grew up playing aggressive, like metal and, you know, hardcore music. So I, I always wanted to, to play heavier stuff and faster stuff and kind of turn the gain up on my amp a little bit louder. So it was just uh, it was just kind of fun for me to to slide into that role and maybe throw in, you know, some more stuff from from my youth. Midtown had been on a couple of majors before you guys broke up. Mm -hmm. Was there any like contractual stuff with you like that had to be worked out for you to like join a band that you know what I mean? Like like to break out of a Midtown contract? Yeah. Not really. Um, okay. It was pretty lax. It's not like we, we had come off a big successful album and they were Columbia was itching to get us back in the studio to make them a couple more million dollars. 
You know, I wasn't that situation. They did want us to record again. And, you know, I, I would run into Matt Pinfield here and there and he'd say, how are the songs coming? You guys doing another record? And I'm like, not really. So I heard the story about Census Field being on drive through and then getting upstreamed and then that not panning out and then them ending up at Vagrant. And there was a bit of a rivalry between Vagrant and drive through at the time. So then when you end up in Census Fail, having had a previous relationship with drive through did you get any any shit from Richard and Stephanie about that? Or is it, was that all old, old news kind of thing? It was kind of old news. Okay. Um, they were at the House of Blues show on that first tour I did with Census Fail when I was just filling in before I was a, a band member. It was just nice to see them. They were, they were cool. I never had a problem with them. They were, you know, I wasn't really the guy in Midtown who did any sort of like business dealings. I was just a guitar player. <laughs> I was I was quiet. I would sing backups and play guitar and not ruffle any feathers. Did you end up becoming more of a writing and, and business partner when you actually joined Senses Fail? I felt like I mean it's it's a totally different band dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Senses Fail was very much like open to ideas of all members and Garrett would pretty much bring in all the song ideas and then we would get together and we would huddle and we'd work them out. We'd modify them. We'd add parts. I would add like a second guitar thing to kind of play off of his thing. And it felt very collaborative. It didn't always feel like that in Midtown. So it was, it was nice to be, to feel like you're a part of like a, a common effort where you're on a team, you know, and everyone's kind of pushing the ball the same way. Uh, But they were, they were really great about letting me in. I was really surprised by it because they, they had their thing already. You know, they were like a fully formed, successful unit. So it, it's odd to be let in when that's, when that's the case, but, but it worked out. Do you think there's a sense at all of like you are older than them and like maybe you were a bit more experienced or, or anything like that? Or like I could see you having like older brother vibes, especially for the younger guys in the band. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It, it did feel that way. It did feel that way. You know, I think that they, they were, uh, they were just very open to, to new input. And it did help that we had a previous relationship and, you know, I'd seen them around. We had toured together a couple of times. And I remember Garrett and I, as two guitar players, we got along great because it took me, it didn't take me a long time to figure out what he was going to do. And it didn't take him a long time to figure out what I was going to do. So we, we learned how to work off of each other really well. Here's Buddy. We recorded them with McTernan, who he had done, I mean, just the Thrice stuff and amongst other other things that we were all, of course, very into. And um, I struggled, you know, I struggled through that time. I dealt with like probably the lowest point in my life. I had a death in the family and I was going on and off medication and, you know, you're dealing with constant touring and then you're on this train that's just going a thousand miles an hour and then it just stops and you're home alone and you know, it's the winter and you got to like, right. Yeah. You go from being the most important person to being the most insignificant person in the day or even in an hour, you know? Yeah. Then, and then you're like, fuck, we got to like, to keep it going, it's all up to us. That's the other thing is like, it becomes extremely daunting because then the next thing that you have to do has to outdo what you did. I mean, like, and how do you even conceptualize that when all you've done is pretty much one thing, you know? But I just sort of took all the despair that I had and put it into the to the music. And obviously, like, I had a, I, I mean, my voice sounds terrible oh, on that record because I was that's like, not true. I was, fu- <laughs> I was fucked. 
I was fucked. I was like fucked up. Like I was in a really, really, really bad headspace and super depressed and like just super just like anxious. And I mean, that's why the record's so good is because I was in such a terrible place. I mean, I also wanted to be the Yang, all of the Christian stuff. So this record is very anti-God. <laughs> Very questioning God. I mean, the entirety of it is a, is about questioning the existence of God and 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 how you know how can God exist if I'm this miserable and destroyed? You know, because back then there was just I mean, every, Christian everything. Throw you out there. You know, it's just you're Christian. You're huge. It's a very big thing. It's a very really. Big, yeah. It's hard. Yeah. I mean. I mean I mean, like these bands were so massive and so successful and Christian rock in in this was like the other side to this. People were Christian who weren't even Christian because it would benefit them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's it's weird. It's almost as if people exploit religion for personal gain. It's so strange. <laughs> yeah, you know, and uh, I mean there are obviously people who are, you know, very devout. No, if it works for you, it works for you, fine. Just I don't know. So there was coming into that. I had a lot of that, what I was writing about, but also my own like struggle with with uh that. I was and speaking to like my family at the time, but the record came out. I mean, I I I, I like this record more than I like Let Unfold You, just because I think it's more of like a cohesive piece. It's kind of an, a loose concept record, and um, but yeah, I mean this this was this was like our pro, I mean second biggest record. Yeah, I was gonna say how was it received? Because it's it's got all it sounds like it's got all the uh, entrapments of being you know you're a young scrappy band who's been through a lot of struggle and then all of a sudden you get a bunch of money and you can go to you can have as much time as you want. Sometimes can be a recipe for disaster. Sometimes it can be like just what you need. But you know I, I was kind of like waiting. I was just like no, and it and it and it was uh, it just as successful if not more. If records had still been selling at the pace they were and downloading hadn't started to eat into record sales, this would be by far more successful than Let It Unfold You. I mean, our biggest song ever is off this record. The biggest success we had of touring, of everything happened on this record. So I personally consider this record our biggest success, even though record sale-wise, this hasn't gone gold, but it's going to go gold and has multiple singles from it that are are gold or will go gold. So this is really, for me, like the peak of what the band was. And and for most people, like most people, uh, it's an argument within our fans, which one, this one is not, doesn't have the nostalgia like of Let Unfold You, but it does really represent the era of like what was going on musically and, and just lyrically at the time. Like it's not dark in the like way that it was like kind of like misogynistic. There's none of that. Like there's, it's, it's, it's all, it's the, deeply depressing. Uh, it's about suicide. Um, I based it, my favorite record of all time is uh, Orange Rhyming Dictionary. Mm. It's sort of my version of of that. That's interesting. That's cool. My favorite song is Sweet Avenue. Is the last song in that record. Yeah, I, Almost all my lyrics pay some kind of homage to... Uh, I like Jets Brazil more than I like Jawbreaker, which is a very unpopular opinion. But I, I, I think don't think you have to pick one or the other. <laughs> you don't. You don't, but I would say that people are like, oh, well, do you like Jawbreaker? I'm like, yeah, of course I like Jawbreaker. But like, you know, from a singer-songwriter Well, I think also I if you're talking about someone who's really interested in lyrics, like we get like... I mean, the Jets Brazil is dense. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, it's very... In, in like in a good way, whereas if like I've heard people like talk about the Decemberists and call them library rock, <laughs> and yeah. and I'm just like I love it. We get in this conversation like Jim, our, our guitar player, doesn't. He's like 
Bob Dylan's fine, but he doesn't write choruses. And I'm like, <laughs> and I was just like, that's, that's not the point. <laughs> you know, like, point of, of Bob. Yeah, I don't know. This, this record's super successful. I mean, but it, it also was sort of the unraveling of the band. I mean, to be honest, I mean, this is when after, uh, you know, we, we, we started to part ways with every record, we lose people. That's like just band members or like people you work yeah, with? Both. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I believe this is the last go for Egan. He was at the, towards the end of this is when he was uh, on his way out. Our bass player at the time, this is when he decided to leave the band end of this record cycle and just part of the thing that's happened. But this record is the peak, I would say, of Senses Fail as far as like success. It sort of started to unravel you know, from what, from the, the initial like big boom, this is like the wave gets to the peak. It sounds like you were in a in a dark place in this period. I mean, you, I know that this is, this is a record that's about loss and about... Um, um, you know, I, I like the kind of like the yang to the Christian thing. And I think that like when I first kind of became aware of you by reputation, I think is maybe when you were in this sort of period as potentially as yeah. like someone who was like maybe more of a partier than I wanted to necessarily hang with. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's weird because like I never actually did drugs. Really? Like, well, hard. Never. No, I never like really did drugs. I just knew that it would really destroy my life. I drank heavily. But I didn't party even as much as like some of the Christian bands partied. <laughs> I did get in trouble sometimes for like partying too hard. And when I partied too hard, like I would break things and things would get broken. So that was like always a thing with like Census Fail and Ellis yelling at us for like doing stuff like that or partying too hard. Like, so we did party hard, but it was like a weird party hard because we never really did, we never did drugs. Like, we didn't have a ton of drugs around, we never did drugs, but we would, you know, need like to have three cases of beer every night and, you know, three bottles of hard liquor and stuff. Were you an angry drunk? No, I just disappear. There was even a point in time like where I wasn't drinking because I just was on so much medication and stuff. And like, I would go on tour and just like not see anyone and just show up on stage. And so I don't know, there's very, there's so many different versions of me that ended up wouldn't fucking being on tour out in front of thousands of people doing shit. So it's like, you never, never really know. But yeah, it was a really dark time in my life. And I think in everybody else's, it's, it was so interesting to like, just be at the top of the pile of what your career is and to be the most miserable and, and to look around at, at your fellow bandmates and everybody's just going, well, we should have been bigger. You know, it's just really like, when I look back on it, it's just such a shame. You couldn't just such like, you couldn't just enjoy the success that you have. No. None. I personally wasn't in that headspace. I was kind of like in my own world of like, okay. One of the biggest issues with most everybody else was that like my singing at that point was like really bad. I got super self-conscious. I went through like really, I had a really bad phase of like really terrible anxiety, which was like unmedicated. I forgot the words on Conan. And that was like sort of just like a spiral for years of just like a self fulfilling prophecy and I never fully was able to like reel it in and like get the help I needed and you know people around me the band they, they got really upset and they they sort of thought like that I was the reason why maybe we weren't as successful so during that time frame you know there are people within the band actively lobbying to kick me out like at the beginning of the record cycle for still searching the first tour we were on was you know an arena tour in Australia and, you know, actively being like, look, if you don't get it together, we're going to kick you out of the band. And it was just 
that's how the record cycle started. And I just could never get it together. I mean, I was just, I should have been at home. I should have been in rehab. I should have done, I mean, the million different things should have happened that, that would have been the smart thing to do. But it was like full steam ahead. This is the peak. We got to go for it. So we were on tour for like two years on this record. And when I really fully look back on it, what happened was uh, I was then 22 years old and my voice changed from when I was 17. It happened to Connolly <laughs> yeah. too. I couldn't sing in the way that I my voice had developed. I was still trying to sing in this old way and I couldn't do it. And we needed to really like restructure the way that we play the songs and maybe change some of the keys or at least the tuning. Like now we play everything in drop C just because it, it's the most consistent tuning for my voice. Nobody was willing to do that. Nobody wanted to do that because that just was, I needed to figure it out. So, but that didn't work because it's just like, here I am like a fucking alcoholic and depressed and anxious. And, and it's like, you know, even internally, you know, on stage, you're feeling everybody fucking hates you. Meanwhile, you're in front of 10,000, 20,000 people every night and you feel like you're blowing it. So it's just a really fucked up, dark, terrible place. And I didn't really enjoy the record cycle. I didn't really enjoy any of it. Uh, it was probably the worst time in my life personally. But you kept, it's like, I, there's so much of this that I relate to, but um, it, it's like you kept going though. Like you didn't. Yeah, I mean, I love music. I mean, my thing is, it's like what I have to do. I'm a musician, so I I'm a musician, and and like this is what I do, and this is what I will always do. And you know, not everybody in a band is a musician. Not everybody in a band is this is their passion. You know, especially when like something kicks off so young and is so successful. It's you a know? blessing and it's a curse like, for sure. It's a blessing and a well, you know, usually you're toiling around for years. It sort of weeds out the people that are like, hey, this is fun, but I want to go do something else. I mean, dude, you know, like it's just not for everybody. It's like people leave. It's it's just the reality of the situation. You know, I was actively almost kicked out of the band. I mean, we had a whole thing with Ellis and everybody's like, you you can't kick him out of the band or else we're going to stop working with the band. Like, we need to figure this out. Like, this is not like, this is not an option. Basically, it had to come to that point to be like, okay, well, you guys need to figure this out because this isn't an option. We're telling you this is your label and as your team that this route of kicking the singer out, specifically this singer, for whatever reason, we think that he brings enough to the band that we're, we we need to fix this. We don't need to get rid of it. And then that sort of set us on, you know, another path of where I think ultimately people just sort of like, you know, started to sort of take a different direction with where's the band going to go and what do they want to do with their life. And, well, you talk know, about course- like an unhealthy relationship to be in post that point then of like, if you know that like people were actively against you and wanted you out of the band and then they got talked out of it. You know, like, it's just like, that's not any way to like continue like being positive and supportive of each other and living in a tour bus together and and anything like that. Like, it just sounds really, sounds really difficult. Yeah, it was. I was just trying to survive, but I get it. Like I got, like, I get how they would look at me and go, dude, like get your shit together. Like this is we need you to get your shit together. Like we need you. Cause I was like up until that point, like the leader of the band, like I was actively like dealing with everything was always doing the planning was doing the talking with the label, talking with management. I was that guy for the band. Like that was like my role. So I think from like a leader standpoint, you know, people were like looking at me as like a failed, you know, leader within the band of like, dude, we need you to get together, get it together. And I just, I just couldn't, you know, and, and like anybody who's ever struggled with, with their voice, it's so much more mental than it is oh, yeah. physical. It's the but, one, you know, it's the one thing that terrifies me. 
Like it's as far as like being a performer goes, like if if there's even a tickle, I'm just like, we're playing nothing but ballads tonight. You know, it's like we're not doing anything that like I have to scream. And when I look back on it, there would have been a million different ways to deal with it. And I wish I just like, it's just one of those things I wish we just dealt with better. But ultimately it, it didn't seem to in any way, shape or form like affect the success of the record or, you know, or anything in that time frame. I mean, we went on this massively long headline and Taste of Chaos International and then Taste of Chaos with fucking, you know, Jared Leto and fucking, <laughs> you know, like, you know, Warp Tour again and fucking a, a massively offensively long Ellis Tour, which was back in the day where we literally play everywhere. Let me guess, he, he routed was, it? Yeah, with two nights with Newfound. So it was us and Newfound two nights everywhere. It was insanely long and uh, that ended it. And it was just a massively successful like two year run, which was none of that internal stuff really. But then again, I look at it like, what if we had been all on the same page? Like, would we have been able to get bigger? And maybe, maybe we would have, but maybe not, you know, I don't know. It is what it is, you know? It's interesting yeah, because it is what it is. like that time period when you're in, in a dark place and you're, you know, you're drinking and it's just like, it's this rock and roll tends to, and I think we're getting better about it now, like celebrates, celebrates mental health problems and bad behavior and addiction in a weird way. We're like, even like to the point where like the people who are like romanticized are the ones who OD'd or like Kurt Cobain, who was a drug addict with, you know, a severe mental, you know, like he was a depressed person. Like, and so it's like, it's, I always joke that it's the only job that you're encouraged to drink at work, <laughs> you know, maybe stand up, yeah, maybe, maybe stand up yeah. comedian, you know, but yeah, I guess the biggest song on the record, it arguably came from being on a video game. Interesting. Um, yeah. And we didn't have like a quote unquote radio hit, but we were on, um, what was it? Guitar Hero. Obviously it came out, it was successful, things went, but then it, the the record gained this steam once we sort of had this song come out, um, Can't Be Saved, as it wasn't even supposed to be a single. I mean, really, it was part of, like, I, I, it was later in the record cycle. Back then, obviously, as you remember, Vagrant was doing a lot of video game stuff. They did the Tony Hawk soundtrack, and, you know, they were deeply involved with licensing the video game stuff, and they were able to get us on uh, Guitar Hero 3, I believe. Yeah, yeah, we were on Guitar Legends Hero 3. Legends of Rock. Like, and, and honestly, I mean, it was it was massive. It was mass. Yeah, it didn't come out until October twenty eighth, two thousand seven. So you know, we 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 kind of like went through this entire record cycle, and then this song was like, "Yo, this song's on fucking Guitar Hero," which is the equivalent of I don't know being in Fortnite or something at this point. You know, like if you you think of it this way, this is the biggest Guitar Hero, and its estimated reach is twelve million, is what I'm reading. Yeah, so we were on that, and that really gave even more life and longevity to this record, kind of like having a, a hit single on the record. Uh, so that song, which is our number one song on Spotify, how you rank things now, is uh, it came from a video game. And then the, our second biggest song is also from this record. It's a single from this record. So arguably we've done two tours playing those records. And, you know, I think this one might be the, the bigger one. Here's Heath again. The first tour I did with them was with Saves the Day. It was like a co-headlining thing. And when we got, when we were headlining, we'd have a longer sound check. So we would start working on ideas. There's a song uh, on the album called Sick or Sane. We pretty much wrote that one on that tour, pretty much complete by the time that tour was over. And we would get a lot of ideas and sound check, which I, I'd heard bands did, but I didn't know that that, that actually happened. And I, and I saw it happen. So it was, it was really cool. We left the tour with a bunch of ideas and we would just, um, you know, after a tour, we'd decompress a little bit, take a couple of weeks and then start meeting at, uh, at Garrett's parents' house during the week 
and you know we would show up and we'd give each other shit go out and get lunch then come back and play guitar you know play some songs together i think we had a little pro tools rig or garrett had like a motu at the time like a little pc motu rig yeah we, we would demo on the motu and we got a bunch of songs together and uh eventually we started thinking about producers and i think the first guy that we all said that we were interested in working with was brian mcturnan and brian came up I think he took like the train or the bus up from Baltimore on like a Tuesday and came to our practice space. We worked on a couple of things and he was like, yeah, I definitely want to do the record. And then it was just figuring out where and, and when we were going to get started. So we did that in upstate New York, Bearsville. Every time I hear somebody I know that we got to record there, I'm super jealous. It sounds amazing. It, it was pretty cool. We were in the small room. It looked like a, like a barn. It was an old barn. And we lived in the house that was next to it. I forget the story with that house. It was, um, it was owned by the the manager of the band, right? Yep. And so, unfortunately, there was no one there to like give us the history of the house and tell us like all the cool stuff that happened there. But it's just a nice little farmhouse in upstate New York. And we went up. We were up there for I think four or five weeks. That sounds really chill. It <laughs> sounds like very like a relaxing way to make a record. It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. The closest thing was like 35, 40 minutes away, and it was like a Walmart. So we'd go there once a week, do our food shopping, and then just, just hang out. Hang out. I, I mean, I remember going to bed at like 9 30, 10 o'clock at night, nice and early. It's a nice change. A little different than tour life, huh? A little different, yeah. We've spoken to Brian McTurnan on the Hot Rod Circuit episode of this podcast. He's produced a bunch of your favorite records, including Still Searching. So since his fail, was a really crazy situation again. That does not surprise me. It seems to be everything <laughs> with Census Fail is a really yeah. crazy situation. They were scheduled to make the record with Steve Evans. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And I was in the studio making the draft album for Epitaph at the time. And I got a phone call from my manager one day and she was like, do you have any interest in doing a Census Fail record? And I was like, no. <laughs> 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 Why not? <laughs> it was because my only time I had ever met Buddy, I was meeting with My Chemical Romance about doing a record for them. And Buddy walked into the backstage room and was like, I told them they should do it with Steve Evans, not you. Cool. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, okay. And then, it, and then he was like, what's your beef with Steve Evans? And I'm like, uh, no beef. Like, he's like a hero. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to process what's happening in this tiny little shared backstage room at the 930 Club. You he know, seems like, to especially when he, I mean, this is age appropriate because he was so fucking young, but like real like black and white about shit back then. Like it was kind of like- Edgelord. Yeah. Is that the term? I don't- Edgelord. Being provocative for provocative sake at all times when he was young. Okay. Yeah. And I think that was it. So my manager at the time ended up saying to me, would you be willing to have a conversation with Buddy? And I'm like- No, that guy's a dick. (laughs) I mean, I was like, I'm working on some records. I don't know. So anyway, we we got on the phone and actually he was very charming and smart and way different than I anticipated. And what ended up happening from my understanding of the situation was Steve was booked, had booked Census Fail and He Is Legend at the same time and had planned to make both records at the same time in two different studios. Yeah, that's correct. I was supposed to be in one and Evans was supposed to be in the other. It's like a fucking I Love Lucy or like that sitcom trope when you take two girls out on a date and you're like, you know, like you have to come run from one restaurant to the other. And yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. Well, so the thing was, 
I think that before Steve had been involved, they had shopped the demos to like some big, not, not that Steve's not a big name, but you know, like it was Howard Benson. Yeah. And everybody passed like the songs needed care. And I think buddy is smart enough to know that he needed someone's full attention. Like, and I think that was what happened. So buddy and I hopped on the phone. And then what I didn't realize at the time was Heath from Midtown had joined the band who I fucking love that guy. And buddy was like, would you be willing to just like come up and have lunch with us? And so I, I got on a train and I went up there. We went to their rehearsal space and we worked on Can't Be Saved, like one of the singles from the record and like did some nice things to the song. And I was like, wait, these guys can play. And like, they were cool to be around. So all of a sudden I was like, maybe this does make sense. But at the time I was making the draft record and then Strike Anywhere was scheduled to come in right after that. And I remember I came home and I was talking to Jason Black at the studio and he was like, well, what are you going to do? I was like, well, I don't think I can do it anyway, because you guys are in and then strike anywhere. And he was like, dude, this is like a really big opportunity for you and you should do it. And like, we can push this record back two months and like, we'll be fine. That is such a fucking rare thing. Oh yeah. No one says shit like that. Strike Anywhere moved back and the draft went home and came back. And I went to Woodstock and we made the Census fail record. Yeah, it's interesting that you had such a negative first interaction with him, but then you went on to like make several records with them. Yeah, I like Buddy a lot. I think he can come across as, especially then, as kind of like this caricature of himself, but he's a smart, talented guy. Like the lyrics on that record are really powerful. And he, at the time we were making that record, had like, I don't know if he had had like throat surgery or he had something that had happened to his voice and he was really struggling to sing. And he never gave up. I mean, we had a really hard time tracking the vocals on that record. He didn't quit. And then we would go on to make two more full lengths and an EP together. I only met him for the first time when we interviewed him for this the other week. And I could see like as someone else who gets called out for like being too brutally honest, I could see how he could be off putting because he does seem to like think what he feels like no matter what, <laughs> like, you know, and I can right, see that, like, right. you know, pushing people the wrong way. It was interesting. Like, <laughs> I remember the first day of tracking. I was like in Woodstock, you know, we're like away from my family. And I like stepped outside to make a phone call. And Garrett, the guitar player, came out and Heath was standing there. And Garrett said to me, like, are you going to get back to work? <laughs> and, and I'm like, are you fucking with me? Like, and he's like, well, we're not here to <laughs> talk on the phone. And I'm like, I couldn't figure out if he was like, actually fucking with me and then Heath was like he's definitely fucking with you and Garrett was like no I'm not like Garrett was like dead serious like he didn't want me on the phone he wanted me he wanted your undivided attention he wanted my undivided attention but Heath was fucking awesome and we had a lot of fun making that record actually it was like you know that was almost like the end of a it had a big budget and Chris Lord Algae mixed it and like oh, wow. the record did well I mean it was it was exciting to be involved with a record like that that was like so well received and I, I also the one thing I loved about that record was that I felt like people thought it was going to be bad and it surprised a lot of people and I think Vagrant the interesting thing thing with that is I still don't think that I had any conversations with anyone from Vagrant ever, even with that record. <laughs> the funny thing is, is when you ended up doing that record and we didn't end up doing it, like our thought was like, oh, wow, all the pressure's off. Like we're never going to be able to make a good record. And then... Because it's their second record, right? It's their second point, yeah. But I told you when we last talked, like when I hit play on it, I was like, holy shit, ball out of the park. Yeah, it was cool. And then they were so young, you know, like, and I just remember they all like drove like BMW 
videos. <laughs> I was like, Great. so fucking weird. So totally <laughs> grounded then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they were big. They got a quarter million dollar each publishing check right as we started the record, and some of them weren't fucking 16 years old. See, My God. this is the thing. This is like what Jim was talking about when we did the podcast with him. Like, we never got that shit. <laughs> you know, like we got, even when Vagrant signed to Interscope, we didn't get, we got fucked nothing out of it. Like, we never got to capital. We were, you know, five to 10 years too early to make any of that real money. But yes, what are you going to do? And then it was like, I was just kind of like in the mix with them from that point on. Back to Heath. That record comes out and like, what's the reaction? Did you have any sense of concern that like things were going to be different now that you were, it was it the original five guys on the first EP and the first record. Pretty much. There was a different bass player in the very beginning. But besides that, it was, it was the five of them. So was there any concern on your end being the, being the new guy and then, you know, doing the, uh, sophomore album yeah i thought people would be like why is this old guy playing with them <laughs> for real i wasn't very concerned about it I, you know there were there were some nights where people would give me shit because i wasn't dave but it's so funny on the outside everyone i do is like wow that was really smart they got a really good guitarist to replace dave thanks just felt like it, it felt like a, a nice role to to jump into because you know the band was just moving it was like a, it was like a freight train by the time we were done recording the album I think we had the first year of tours book. Like we knew what we were going to be doing. We knew we were doing Warp Tour immediately after it. We knew there was going to be a Taste of Chaos. And then we found out that there was going to be a Taste of Chaos International. And we knew we would be touring with sales since we were just, we were set. We knew what we were going to be doing. There was no stress at all. We were well-practiced. We went into the album knowing everything that we were going to play. And when you're in a band and you play with a drummer who's solid, and Matt, you know this, because mm -hmm. the drummers you've played with, you don't worry about it. Because it definitely takes a load off. It's it's huge. It's it's the it's the best thing knowing that you could fuck up. You know, you could be up on stage and you could forget a couple chords and you know bend your octaves all out of tune and like maybe miss a harmony or two. But no one's going to really notice that because the guy behind you is just holding it down and you don't have to worry about it at all. Yeah, I mean, I have often said, and I'm not. I certainly didn't pioneer this phrase, but I think a live band is only as good as their rhythm section, and a rhythm section's only as good as their drummer. Yeah, you know, like it's it's the one thing that, like, you know, you can you can build a drum track in the studio, but when you when you do it live, like you can't you can't fake that shit. You might as well be playing to to loops. And even if that falls apart, if something happens and the drums fall apart, Buddy is gonna take care of it. You know, like there, I, there's no pressure on anybody else in the band. It's for, it's all on Buddy, and he he's the focal point, and he's the one who's up there. And you know that he's just going to be able to deal with it, whatever it is. I've seen him pull off the most incredible things on stage. Elaborate on that. I have so many stories of him, but he would involve my my wife in his stage banter. So when we were dating, he would just he would throw her the mic when he was singing. And she would just let it fall to the ground. She had no idea why he was doing this. <laughs> but, but everyone else, like, you know, myself included, I would just start cracking up and I'd look out to the crowd and they were just puzzled. They didn't know what he was doing, but he just kind of transfixed them. He would see, he would tell people that songs were about her. He would just make up ridiculous things on stage. He would sing nursery rhymes in between songs, but he would also have moments where he's just like completely engaged and go into a really well thought out essay about something and just get capture everyone's attention so how long were you guys touring on that record because it like a, is it a good two years of touring felt like it it was so we started touring on that the warp tour started in june i think the first 12 months 
we toured 11 of the first 12 months. Wow. We were gone a lot. We were gone on long stretches. We, we did Taste of Chaos International, which was like a month and a half. And then we did two months in the States. I don't think we came home until April from that, April or May. We were gone a lot. It was, yeah, it was, it was a hard run, but felt easy. Even at your advanced age of being five years older than everybody, like it's still still young and, and relatively easy then. My advanced age of 28. Yeah, right. When did Jason join on bass? So Glitta told us that he wanted to leave the band before we did the Newfound Glory co-headline tour in 2007. And the whole tour, he was kind of waffling back and forth. He wasn't sure if he was actually going to leave or not. And at the end of the tour, we're like, we're doing another record. So you're either going to stay and help write the record and, and do it and be on for the whole thing, or you got to get off now. So he was like, okay, well, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going back to school. And he, he left to do his own thing. And Brian McTurnan and Jason were really close friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so Brian recommend, I don't know if Brian recommended to Jason that he should get in touch with us or Jason heard that we were you know looking for a bass player. But I remember when Buddy called me to tell me about it. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'm like, hire Jason Black right now. <laughs> he's like what do you mean i'm like just call him and tell me he has the job tell me he has it he's the best bass player alive like like i revered everything that hot water music did and especially i mean you talk about a rhythm section of jason yeah. and george i mean those guys were just like locked in mm-hmm. um i was like whatever you have to do to get jason involved do it and we did he pre came up and he practiced with us a couple times there was a good vibe was hot water did they ever actually officially break up or did they just take like a, a hiatus i don't know which word they used but it was clear that they were ceasing activities as a fully functioning dance sometime around 2006 okay so i remember chuck put up something i remember the one of the quotes from his statement was that in the future he plans to farm more food than he buys and i was like wow he and I are cut from the same cloth in that regard. I, I very much like he and I always talk about fishing and farming and, <laughs> and yeah. stuff like that. I love Chuck. Brian McTurnan told me that when when they showed up to do vocals for one of the albums, I think it was, uh, it was either Caution or the new one next, that Chuck arrived with like a boat, like a canoe on the top of his truck. And that's what he brought to the studio. He just a brought canoe? a canoe so he could go out and, and fish in the morning. Hey, he, knows, he knows what he likes, man. Yeah, it's great. I love it. So did Jason come in to, because this was, it. was this after the Newfound Glory? Is that what you said? That Jason came on board? Yeah, Jason came on board after that tour. And so we, was, that the, was that the end of the, of the uh, still searching like record cycle? Yeah, I think that tour ended in October, November of 2007. And um, so Jason probably came in in early 2008 and started practicing with us. We recorded in April and May of 2008. So he just came in and immediately started writing with you guys then? He came in for a random show that January. Man, was it that January or like November? I don't know, man. He did the same thing I did. He just learned the songs, came up. We ripped through them in practice. And I was like, okay, well, he knows these songs. This is not going to be hard. And we played a couple shows. They went really smooth. And then we continued writing. And I think he came up for the for the tail end of writing. Uh, and then we wrote a couple other songs in the studio. That one we did at Brian's studio in Fells Point. Okay, so that... That you did that one with Brian too. Did that one with Brian at Brian's studio. Okay. What was that record like? Was it I guess it would be a different experience than being up in Bearsville. It was different. It was um it was a harder time for the band. We had gone through a couple weird things from the one album to the next. And there was some there was some tension, there was some strife, there were some personal issues. But I think when we got into record, I think a lot of that was kind of smoothed over. But Buddy wrote a lot of lyrics in the studio. He was going through a lot personally then. 
and I was kind of just on vacation. <laughs> um, I was, I, I loved it down there. So, you know, we'd go, we'd go to like to the bars after we were done working and come back and stay up all crazy late at night and then get up and, and, and write in the morning. But I don't think we were as well prepared for life is not a waiting room as we were for still searching. Do you think there was an element of like things have been going, 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 going up till that point? Like, it, cause from before you joined the band till the record, the first record you put out with them, it, was, it just seemed like it was a, like it was a roller coaster of work. Yeah. Like, do you think there was like a, an element of like burnout? I think so. Yeah. I think there was definitely like some songwriter burnout. It was like, you know, we just did this really ambitious album. Where do we want to go from here? And we weren't, you know how like sometimes when you're writing, you just have those moments where you hit on something and you know, it's the right thing. We didn't have as many of those moments. I didn't, I didn't think we were kind of pushing a little bit harder and not getting as much out. Do you think that was the group interpretation or was that just your personal interpretation of that? that period well that's definitely mine but i i think i think that there were elements of that that are shared by the other guys i think looking back at it now i think we're all a lot more proud of that record than we were immediately do you feel pressure like a ton of pressure ton of pressure from who from ourselves i think i think we we wanted to top the last record Uh, we really wanted to to do something uh, great and we put a lot of pressure on ourselves for it did you feel any of that from the label at all from vagrant i don't remember feeling much pressure from from vagrant at all this is funny to me because this is proving to be a very similar conversation that i've had including when i've interviewed my own bandmates of just being like we put so much pressure on ourselves just to keep going, 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 going. And usually you hear stories about like, you know, in that kind of like classic rock and roll scenario of like, the band's getting burnt out. They need to take a break. And the label's like, no, you can't take a break. You lose momentum and, and all this sort of, and Vagar just seems to kind of be like, you guys are just do your thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, guys do your record. We'll put it out. Yeah. It's worked so far. <laughs> yeah. You know what you're doing. It's your, it's your, it's your company. It's your band. You guys take care of it. So, when you guys start getting ready to tour for that record, was the was the touring vibe different? Because it comes out in two thousand eight, and then you were only in the the band till the following summer, right? Yeah, I I think I did like the whole touring cycle with them. I think we had some pretty weird tours. We did a lot of headlining stuff. We didn't really have much many support tours, you know, of us supporting other acts. We did the Warp Tour in two thousand nine. But leading up to that, we had we had a couple of pretty cool tours. We were out with uh, with a bunch of bands. So this is where I started to feel really out of touch. We were touring with bands that I didn't really know. Previously, it was like, you know, we tour, we toured with Saves Today. I knew Saves Today. We toured with Seosin. I know Seosin. And now we were touring with bands who started after, basically who started after my previous band had broken up. Bands like Dance Gavin Dance, um, who were doing this crazy shit that like was like super progressive and there was like a guy who would just like he he had like a very soulful singing voice but he would also scream and that was totally trippy to me like that was like a new thing i had never heard of hmm. but there's just like a lot of other stuff going on that i that made me feel out of touch and i didn't really feel like kind of like honed in on it but then when we when we went back and we did the warp tour i felt more more level but i knew going into that that was going to be my last tour why was that i started kind of worrying about what's next with the band or with you with me mm-hmm. with me you know i it was re- it was a really selfish decision but i went through bad end of the band with midtown where like we had put out a record that we were really really proud of and no one cared people stopped coming to the shows and we started to infight and we couldn't deal with each other anymore and the band broke up and i saw census fail put out a record that we were really proud of but it didn't resonate as well with crowds and it, 
it seemed like the music industry as a whole wasn't as healthy as it had been. The streaming streaming kicked in, killed record sales. People weren't going to concerts quite as much as they were. Revenue was down um, all across the board. Um, and I didn't think that it was sustainable. And I started to think about, you know, where I was going to be in five years. And I didn't think I'd be able to stick it out and keep going in a band. How old were so, you then? I had just turned 30 years old. That's a <laughs> that's a time to think about stuff like that. That was it, yeah. I remember being on a tour in Europe with them, and we were playing awesome places, places I'd never <laughs> been to. We were in Florence, Italy, and I just remember not wanting to leave the bus. And the bus wasn't even on. It didn't even have air conditioning. But <laughs> I, just, I just didn't want to go anywhere. I just felt like I was in a box. just felt like kind of depressed and maybe just over the whole thing. And uh, they let me do one last tour. They, they let me do that, uh, that warp tour with them. And uh, I had a really great time. And that was really more like summer vacation than anything else. And after that, that was, that was it. Was your departure from the band I, maybe not amicable, but at least peaceful as opposed to like the way Midtown ended? Yeah, it was. It was, uh, it was definitely peaceful. I think they, they totally understood why, why I left. They saw that I wasn't dealing with touring well anymore. I just couldn't hack it. I couldn't do it anymore. I've been touring for like 11 years, which I, I mean, at this point seems like nothing. But at that point, it's like that was my whole adult life was yeah. spent, was spent touring. So, yeah, I just, I just knew that it wasn't something I wanted to do anymore. I told them that I couldn't do it and they, they understood. But we remain friends to this day. I still talk to Buddy all the time. That's very healthy of you, <laughs> which is something like not a very common thing you get to say to people in our industry. Yeah, no, it is. Here's Buddy again. In 2013, so I put out two records after that on Vagrant that had diminishing success as far as they never were able to have the same success as uh, Let Unfold You or Still Searching. You know, Life is Not a Waiting Room, the one that came out after Still Searching, is definitely one that a lot of our fans actually think is the best. But from all that I can gather, it's definitely the least streamed. In fact, our newer records actually do better. For us, Like it's like Let Unfold You, Still Searching, and then some of the newer stuff, and then these other like records like Life is Not a Waiting Room. But for some people, it's a super meaningful record. It's like, about uh, being depressed after like a long-term breakup and just sort of, you know, that. I mean, we had a song in a video game too. Wolf of Door was on the new Madden. Uh, it didn't obviously have the same effect, but this is also when like pretty much what's it called just came in and started just destroying all us older bands. We were considered old at that time. Like um, Bring Me the Horizon came out uh, of Mice and Men and, you know, we was just like transitioning to the, to the new thing. You've been a, on the side of that and sort of like, doesn't matter how good the record is. It's like, if it's not the right time and that's not where music is and just kind of ends up just not hitting. And again, it came out, forget what day it came out, but it came out in 2008, which is right literally when, yeah, when everything went to shit. Collapse happened and it was perfect for the same thing. Cause we are, success here kind of mimicked the economy <laughs> and uh it kind of slipped in you know just slipped into like a little bit of a coma time and again we had a couple more people leave the band and did some weird tours with like hollywood undead and broken side on this <laughs> thanks thank ellis for that one it was still a really good tour i mean too real weird massive tour but yeah let unfold you still searching and they kind of like kind of start to decline after that as far as like commercially was successful. still supportive though definitely for life is not a waiting room it was kind of one of those things of like nobody really knew why it wasn't connecting and i think i it, imagine I think there's a lot something of it just, i mean besides the economic collapse but like the the 
the scene changes. Like it's it, the scene change. The it scene changes. Waves, and you, never you, know? realize it. you never realize it until later, and you go, "Oh shit, yeah, that that's why that one didn't do so well." You know, we're here trying to just pretty much make Still Searching two, which we we didn't. You know, I don't think it's as good, but it was also a different take. It was a little bit more like the heavier was heavier, but not heavy enough. That's the thing is like we weren't able to keep up where where the record. Two records before, we were the quote-unquote tastemakers kind of making the scene. This one, we were now chasing the tastemakers, but I don't think we realized we weren't the ones. Like, it's just this sweet area where you either go out on a fucking limb and you really try something new and you nail it, or you try to, like, play it safe. And I think we played it safe, but, like, it just didn't connect in the same way. And, uh, again, streaming Well, that's also when they was really damned if you do. Still, and you're streaming damned. hadn't started. Yeah, streaming hadn't started, and this was full-on shit's getting downloaded. So we're into that phase where no one knew what was going on. It was chaos. Everything was crumbling. Economy's crumbling. Music industry at the same time was like, we don't know how to monetize anything we're doing. You know, let's do the same thing we have been doing. And that, that had, that didn't work. You know, all the, all the, all the MTVs, everything was falling apart. So there was no way to push it in the traditional sense. And we hadn't come up with a new way. And we also weren't, didn't have that 16 year old sort of like fire that was there. Our fans were now like 22, 23, which you probably know when your fans who listen to you when you were 16 become 23, there's like this really bad area where they sort of swear off everything they liked when they were young before they come back around at 30. So you got to find a way to make it work for those five, six kind of dead years where they're like, yo, I don't like that. That's childish before they embrace everything they ever loved as a kid because they realize they're getting older. So that's where we were. And we put out two records in that space. Yeah. You know, to me, they're just sort of like, I don't know, kind of like whatever. I think we could have tried harder. I think everybody could have tried harder. Like all around, label, band, everybody. We could have done more, could have tried harder. Kind of ended up all just sort of just being there as part of our catalog of just stuff that isn't bad, but isn't great. But some people will still swear it's the best thing we ever did, which is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's always... Sometimes I wonder, because we have records like that too, and I wonder if there's people who are just like, they like being the one who likes the weird ones. Yes, you know, like they do. Not to say that it's, ba- it's necessarily better or worse or whatever, but just kind of like. Right. We've gotten burned too, because we're like, dude, everybody listen. They say they want this song. And we're like, all right, let's bring out this song, the deep cut from the fucking record no one likes. Right, and you right, play right. it, and it's <laughs> And you're like, dude, never listen to these. Because sometimes one guy on the internet you think is speaking for a larger audience. And sometimes that's true. But a lot of times it's just one guy on the internet (laughs) or girl. And you're like, fuck, man. It was really just that one person that wanted to hear that song. And you know what? They they're not here. Yeah. Or they are. And that's great because there's a thousand other people and there's one person who wants to hear this. Well, I mean, it's it's a balancing act, you know. If you keep just playing all the deep cuts and you're gonna alienate a lot of the people who don't know them. Yes. So the world had changed, the economy had changed, and the scene had changed. But Census Fail kept pushing forward. So how many records did you guys put out on Vagrant? Because you're with Pure Noise now, right? Yeah. Um, well, technically, Vagrant decided to stop putting out this style of music, but they didn't want to just get rid of Census Fail. So they started. They created a, a side label that was called Staple Records. If you include that, it was Let Unfold You, Still Searching, Life Is Not A Waiting Room, The Fire, Renaissance. So one, two, three, that, four, five. That transition, because like I, that's part of one of the things we're talking about is like them kind of going into like more of a indie pop sort of direction or whatever. Mm-hmm. Was that like 
articulated to you that that's what they wanted to do? Or is it just sort of like... You just sort of like stuck your head up and you're like, what? What's <laughs> going on? And then you're like, you know what I mean? It was, it was weird. It was uh, it was never really fully articulated. Were you disappointed though? I don't know. Sounds like you have a, a period in your career where you were just kind of over it. <laughs> and you were like, sort of like just well, frustrated. I, I, I actually, in the Renaissance era... I was transitioning into kind of working in the music industry okay. and I was concerned less with the success of Census Fail and more with trying to sort of find a way what I was going to do post Census Fail. So I actually used Vagrant getting rid of Vagrant to work for Vagrant. Um, I worked for Vagrant as the production manager for about a year and a half, almost two years. Um and uh how was that and it was cool i mean i um i enjoyed getting a chance to sort of support myself you know really going from like not really being able to support myself through census fail at the time to sort of having like a a real job and i managed bands and i did that so i didn't exclusively work on Renaissance because I really right at the end, right at the beginning of the Renaissance record cycle is when I really tried to transition into working the business side. And then, so I didn't fully work on putting that one out, but that was when that one technically came out as part of this new label thing that was meant to do rock and metal. And then the Vagrant thing was going to just do all the indie, you know, indie stuff, which they had been doing for a couple of years. I don't think I even really knew about this, this other, what was it called? Staple? Yeah. I mean, we put out like a lot of spew. We put out, I mean, Cult of Luna. We put out some, I mean, I got to work with some really cool stuff. I mean, Cult of Luna, if you're a fan of the band or, or, the, or any kind of like post metal or whatever, I mean, they're like the greatest band in the genre but uh, we put out vertical by them we put out um uh, a lot of dispute record a couple other things and uh one of the things was uh, a census fail record and then um yeah yeah so i mean really we had like one two three four on vagrant and then renaissance was like this transitional period for vagrant as well as census fail it was kind of like a weird heavy record for us so it sounds like you had kind of made up your mind to like get out of being on the performance and right yeah, inside, I mean, well, it was, what brought you back yeah. into it? Oh, man, I just like didn't, uh, I didn't like uh, working on the business side. I mean, to be honest, I had to constantly, I was just constantly always fighting this idea that I was like an imposter. You know, I think like, a lot of people on the were very threatened by me. Why is that? Well, I just because like I came at it from like a completely different mindset. Like all my ideas and, and uh, what I thought was important was sort of kind of in some ways counterproductive to what people were trying to do. And I mean, just based on like what I wanted, what I thought would be good for marketing, what I thought would be good for spending money on, like what I thought how to manage an artist, like how you have to like kind of be their therapist and not just like, you know, like, you know, just doing, I don't know. I just, and, and um, I don't know, I just knew it was to be an uphill battle. I also knew that I was going to have to sacrifice some of what I cared about in order to be successful. I mean, I had a couple bands that were stolen from me and just like, it, it's just, a, it's a dirty world. It's not about music. It's about business. And um, you can be that person that makes it about music and, and be successful, but it does take a lot more work. And we were coming up on Let Unfold You, 10 year anniversary. And I was kind of like, man, like I could probably quit and live off this for a minute and transition into a new record and maybe just try to like make this the thing that I was doing, you know? And uh, I just was a little disillusioned. I mean, Vagrant was in the very, it was at the very end of Vagrant. I mean, I was around 
right before they sold to BMG. So I just got now, and I kind of saw the writing on the walls too of like, okay, this is gonna like I'm I'm not gonna be brought in. You're not gonna be hired by BMG. (laughs) Yeah, or nor nor did I really want to go. Like that's not what I wanted to do. I didn't I didn't want to go. You know, to that world. It just wasn't something I was interested in and I tried it and you know I mean it's hard to live your whole life as a musician and then like transition into an office job yeah you know and uh, they were kind of winding down and gonna sell off and I just was like you know I'm just gonna jump ship and I kind of got tangled in with a couple other things I didn't want to be doing like I ended up working for a management company I didn't want to work for and managing bands I didn't want to manage that I thought were terrible Uh, that was kind of a a giant bummer (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm sure those bands will be like, stoked to hear that. That's it for this episode of Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets. On our next episode, we'll begin to tell the story of Vagrant taking more of a turn into heavy music with the bled and from autumn to ashes. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate it on iTunes. This podcast was produced by Jesse Cannon for Muse Formation and executive produced by Fred Feldman and Andrew Ellis. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode.